Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago when Pastor Tony asked me to preach here in Lee's Summit, I sent a quick email to Pastor Aaron and asked him, what would you like me to preach on? He said, well, we've been talking a lot about Paul in the New Testament. Why not something from the Old Testament about the holiness of God? And my first thought was, you have a good pastor. And my second thought was, oh my goodness. It is a great honor and a privilege to bring the word of the Lord to you this morning. And our passage is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. It's a very famous passage. It's very well known. It's been preached and exposited many, many times. But as it is true of the rest of the scriptures, it is well worth uh, exploring who God is through his word once again. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken tong with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Let us pray. Father, it is with trembling hearts that we come before you. We know that you are holy and that we are not. And yet, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You have made yourself known, and you are great and glorious. You have chosen to 
Call us to yourself to place us in your Son by grace through faith. And we pray that that position would open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, and open our mouths to proclaim the goodness, the greatness, and the majesty of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many things about this passage that are difficult, not necessarily to understand or to see just the words on the page, but it is difficult to understand and to grasp the fullness and the greatness and the majesty and the grandeur of God. His holiness is perfect. His glory is beyond that which we can receive and take in. But when we see it, when he reveals himself to us, when he makes himself known, that vision of the glory of God causes us to give a confession, a confession of faith. Yes, you are great, I am not. And from that confession, God then gives a commission. You have seen me. You have acknowledged your sin before me. Now go and make me known. So from our passage, we will look at the vision that God gives Isaiah of himself. The confession that Isaiah gives from this holy God and the commission that God gives to Isaiah to the people of Israel. As a missionary, one of my greatest memories is of entering Tibetan Buddhist temples. Most of them were about the size of a suburban house, and they were painted a deep burgundy red. And the doorway was open, but across the bottom of the doorway was a board about two or three feet high. And that board didn't move. So in order to enter the temple, you had to step over that board. That board, according to Tibetan Buddhist beliefs, meant that evil spirits could not enter the temple. But on one particular occasion that has stood out to me, I knew the moment I entered the temple that that was definitely not the case. The sense of unwelcome that I felt for being in that dark place was, it was real. As I scanned the room, there were paintings of reincarnation wheels and of bodhisattvas, a, a demigod who had earned enough merit to get off the, the wheel of reincarnation and remain, oh, remain outside nirvana and help people get off the wheel of reincarnation. But what stood imposingly in the room was a 10 to 20 foot Buddha made of bronze, seated 
and with its hands positioned according to some sort of Buddhist belief. And before this Buddha were several monks, 10 to 20 monks, each of them reciting a certain portion of Buddhist scriptures or chanting their incantations. There was also incense being burned and fruit was off, fruit and flowers were offered and presented to the Buddha in sacrifice and offering. The point of all this activity was for the monks to gain the same kind of enlightenment that the Buddha had, to be able to leave that wheel of reincarnation, to become like the Buddha. And that is the point of worship. We become like the God that we worship. In ancient Israel, the temple that Solomon built and set up was not to worship a false god, but the one true God. And in this temple, in the courtyard, there was the altar where the animal sacrifices were made. And these sacrifices were meant to point the people to the fact that they needed a substitute in order to stand before a holy God. They needed someone else's death to take their place. And as they progressed from the courtyard into the holy place, there was the lampstand and the table of the showbread and the altar of incense representing the prayers of the people. And in that room they could see the veil separating them from the cubic space of the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And only the high priest could enter this sacred space, and that once a year, and with the blood of the sacrifice to place upon the mercy seat. This space, these rites, these rituals were designed for the people to come to a good and pure and right and holy knowledge of God. They were designed to help the people to come to worship God, to become like him. But instead of worshiping him and him alone, these people were also worshiping the false idols and the false gods of the Canaanites. They were worshiping under every green tree and on the top of every high hill. And it was because of this duplicity and because of this hypocrisy that God sent a vision of himself, of his true nature to Isaiah. We are told in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, Uzziah was one of the good kings of Israel. He was one of the eight good kings. But even though he was a good king, he had been proclaimed a good king by the author of Scripture. At the, toward the end of his reign, he went into the temple and offered incense 
and he did so to his own peril. Nadab and Abihu, who were the sons of Aaron, offered strange fire before the Lord, and they were consumed instantaneously. Yet Uzziah was given the opportunity to turn and repent. The Levites came in and confronted him and said, you are not allowed to do this, king. King Uzziah did not repent, and because he did not, he was stricken with leprosy. And because of this leprosy, he could not rule and reign from his throne. And in contrast to this uncleanness, God is presented as clean and pure and holy and reigning from his throne. And his throne is high and lifted up. Solomon, in his prayer of dedication to the temple, said, Behold, the heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this small building that I have constructed. It's only three stories. And indeed, the size of the temple is brought into great perspective by the next words. The train of his robe or the hem of his garment filled the temple. The smallest part of God's garment filled the temple with glory. God's throne is high. It is far above this universe. We know that we can see about 15 billion light years away. And there are probably galaxies even beyond that. But when Solomon says, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, God is beyond this universe. He is infinite. There is no limit to him. And when we come before him and when we are confronted by him, by his holiness, by his greatness and his majesty, we cannot but look ahead to Isaiah's response of woe to me. In verse 2, we see that seraphim are above God and each has six wings. Now God, when he creates creatures, he creates them for the environment in which they are to dwell. These seraphim are designed to dwell in the holy presence of God. And so they have six wings. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they cover their face. And with two, they fly. Even angels who have not sinned have to cover their face before a holy God. And through these wings that are covering their faces, they cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in Hebrew, when you want to express something, it is superlative. You don't say holy, holier, holiest. You repeat the word three times. So the angels are saying, 
the Lord of hosts is the holiest being in existence. There is nothing that is more holy than God. Holy, holy, holy. He is pure. He is righteous altogether. There is no shadow of change or of betrayal within him. There is no duplicity in God. There is no hypocrisy in him. And the whole earth is full of his glory. If the heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him, what is man, says the psalmist, that he is mindful of us? Who are we that God thinks about us, cares for us? But the whole earth is full of his glory. And the prophets pray and long for the day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of his glory. We long for everyone to know who God is in the fullness of his glory, of his righteousness, of his perfections. We long for that day to come. And God, with even just a whisper of his words, as we are told in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shake at his voice. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. God is absolutely unapproachable by those who are not holy. Anything in this world that we can think of that we try to rest and rely upon can, be sh can and will be shaken whether it's our houses, this building, uh, the ground itself. It will one day be shaken. We are told in Hebrews that the shaking of the heavens and the earth will come and that day will be great and terrible. But we are also reminded of the moment when God presents himself to the children of Israel after having been brought out of Egypt, after having crossed the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai to a darkness, gloom, and storm, and great holiness, and great angst, and the people are forbidden from even approaching or touching the mountain. And God says to Moses, Moses, you alone are allowed to come up. And the people agree and say, Moses, you go up and intercede for us. That day was shaken. The people were shaken. The day is coming when this world will be shaken. And the foundations and the thresholds the things upon which we place our hope and our foundations and our trust will be shaken, except they will be shaken to, be made, to make room for that which cannot be shaken. Turning back to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, 
we are reminded of the fact that these things, these temporary, uh, this temporary world will fall away to make way for that which cannot be shaken. And God, in his holiness and in his permanence, will call us to himself, and we will forever be in his presence. And nothing will shake us from that day forward. From the vision, we turn now to the confession that Isaiah made in verse 5. And I said, woe to me, for I am lost, or undone, or possibly disintegrated. When an unholy creature sees a holy God, he cannot help but recognize, I am lost. I am undone. There is nothing good that dwells within me. I am a man of unclean lips. He turns to talking about his lips. What is it about our lips that the prophet turns to? Why does he explore? Why does he turn to talking about his mouth? Well, later in the Gospels, Jesus talks about out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'm a man of unclean lips. If, I, if my lips are unclean, then my heart also is unclean. And my entire being does not deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. What, but what is it about Isaiah's lips? And what is, it, what is it about the lips of the people among whom Isaiah was dwelling that made them unclean? I think that it had to do with the duplicity of their worship. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah pens the words, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so even though the people were saying, yes, the Lord, he is God, and they were going through the rituals under their good kings, the people were also worshiping the false gods on the top of every high hill and under every green tree. And the cycle of their cycle of repentance, of infidelity and rebellion to repentance, to forgiveness, to restoration, their cycle of going through that time and time again was about to end. God was going to send Assyria to conquer the northern tribes and to threaten Judah. Within a few short years, the northern tribes were going to be taken away because of this cycle of infidelity. Within a few short years also, Babylon would come in and sweep away the southern kingdom of Judah. 
Woe to me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I have not proclaimed the holiness of God the way I should have, even though I am a prophet, even though I know and love God, yet I too must repent of having unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. King Uzziah was not completely faithful. God himself alone remains completely faithful. He is fully just. He is completely righteous. And in him there dwells no unclean thing. When we see the king, when we see this Lord of hosts, we recognize that we are undone. But that is not the end of the story. Thanks be to God. For next, we see that one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah. He grabs from the altar a coal, a red hot coal with tongs and grabs it in his hands and t doesn't just walk or saunter over to Isaiah. He flies to him. As soon as Isaiah makes the confession, he flies and touches that burning coal to Isaiah's lips. He touches and cauterizes the one part of Isaiah that Isaiah says, I am unclean because of my lips. I have not proclaimed the holiness of God the way I should have, the way I must now. And with that burning coal, the angel touched Isaiah's mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The wonder and the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God is that he is holy, but beyond that, he is also kind and gracious and forgiving. If you have ever been forgiven of something, if you know that your guilt is taken away, you know the rest and the joy that comes from that knowledge. From the New Testament, again, we can think of the example of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors in the Roman Empire were recruited by Rome from the people that were being taxed. And so, because, because of that, the, the people of Israel looked at the tax collectors as those who were traitors. And beyond being a traitor, the tax collectors would also collect more than they needed to in order to pay Rome. So they were traitors. They were thieves. They were despised. They were hated. And yet, God placed within Zacchaeus a desire to see Jesus. 
And on that day when Jesus was walking along the road, Zacchaeus found a sycamore tree and he climbed up into that tree in order to see Jesus. Jesus looks up at him and says, come down, I must come to your house this day. We're not told of the conversation that Jesus had with Zacchaeus, but we see the fruit when Zacchaeus says, Behold, if I have defrauded anyone, I will give four times to anyone I have stolen from. I, I will give four times what I have taken. And Jesus says, Truly salvation has come to this household. The response of repentance is not just, I'm sorry for what I've done, but it is, I have to take action because of what God has done for me. And that action, turning back to Isaiah chapter 6, um, is the commissioning that God gives to the prophet Isaiah. Not only has he seen the Lord in a vision, not only has he confessed his unworthiness and received forgiveness and cleansing, but the next thing is that Isaiah receives a commission. And the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And without hesitation, without asking, okay, what's the mission? What do I need to do? What, how's it going to happen? None of that. Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. When he has seen the holiness of the Lord, when he has received forgiveness from a holy God, he has the immediate response of, here I am send me. One of the things that I have done in my life is to try to read the scriptures in a second language. I didn't make it very far. I didn't make it the whole way through. But one of the things that I noticed because I was reading in a second language was the contrast between Adam and Eve's response to God when God said, where are you? With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Isaiah as well. Adam and Eve said, I hid myself because I knew you were coming and I was ashamed. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, together with Isaiah, say, here I am. I am an instrument in your hands. You have revealed yourself to me. You have forgiven me. I have nothing to do but to say, here I am. Use me as you will. Here I am. Send me. No questions asked. No thought of Looking, putting your hand to the plow and looking back. Here I am, send me. I've, I'm undone and you have remade me. 
I was dirty. I was unclean. I was a leper, and now you have cleansed me, made me whole, made me pure, made me like yourself. What do you want me to do? God tells Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. The message that Isaiah is given is one of hardening rather than softening. Isaiah is given a very difficult message, one that he cannot, he cannot bear if he had not seen a vision of God. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on hearing, but do not perceive. In the New Testament, Jesus quotes this passage when he's explaining to his disciples why he teaches the people in parables. He teaches the people in parables to keep them from hearing and seeing so that, uh, so that they don't turn and receive forgiveness. This is a difficult message for our day and our time as well. Most of the time people think that God is a loving God and he wants everyone to come to repentance and God is compassionate and he does want people to come to forgiveness, to repentance and forgiveness. But there does come a time when the, the heart of the people has become so dull that God says, okay, I give you over. And in verse 10, God says to Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Isaiah, in the rest of the chapter, he says, how long? And God's response basically is, until the captivity in Babylon, until I send my Redeemer, until I send the one who will reveal my perfect character to you, until the time of the permanent kingdom. Until that time, we have the responsibility to see God in his holiness. He has given us the complete revelation of himself in his scriptures. We must see him in the fullness of his glory. We must confess that we are undone if he does not forgive us. And we get to rejoice and revel in his forgiveness. And we get to go and proclaim the fullness of the holiness of God, both in his justice and in his mercy. And let God do the hardening or the softening as 
he wills. May we go forth and proclaim this holy God together, both now and forevermore. Let us pray. God, this passage is sobering. And we, your creatures, are weak and frail and unclean. But you have chosen to give us the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith, to give us forgiveness and cleansing, to remove our guilt. May the freedom and the joy of that removal enable us, strengthen us, and empower us to take the message of your glory to a dark and dying world. We praise you for who you are and for what you have done and for what you will do. We ask all these things in your mighty name. Amen.